This is Dr. Michael Wald, and thank you so much for joining me today on this cardiovascular topic with a twist. Today's talk is all about the impact or impacts of intermittent fasting on various parameters of cardiovascular disease. You've probably heard claims that intermittent fasting lowers cardiovascular risk, but you might not actually know why that is, and it's important to know the why because sometimes things don't work out exactly right with intermittent fasting for lowering all cardiovascular risk factors. But if you have an understanding about how and why intermittent fasting did work, you can fill in the blanks. Let me just say this. The potential benefits of intermittent fasting for any health problem are just that. They are potential. You should not expect that you will as a guarantee, lose healthy weight. If you do intermittent fasting, you are going to lose weight, but you might also lose lean body mass weight, and that is inherently unhealthy, increasing your risk of overall death and disease. And that's no exaggeration. On the other hand, if intermittent fasting is performed right, in the right individual for the right amount of time, for the right effects to happen, then under supervision, you have the greatest potential of intermittent fasting to make a difference for your health. So today, as I mentioned, is a show on intermittent fasting and cardiovascular disease. And I've called it the intermittent fasting cardiovascular disease connection. Now, before we get into this, I wanna welcome everyone who's new to the show. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. You can reach me with your questions or if you want to schedule with me as a patient, either in person or at a distance, by calling 914-552-1442. 914-552-1442. Send me your show topic ideas, just like you did with this one. I got lots of people who wanted to know about cardiovascular disease, lots of individuals who wanted to know about the potential benefits of intermittent fasting and cardiovascular disease. So I put those two together because they are very important and here you have it. So once again, we're talking about the intermittent fasting cardiovascular disease connection. Let me start with some basic concepts about cardiovascular disease, the different types of cardiovascular disease. I'll talk about basic nutritional factors, what supplements to think about because during intermittent fasting conversations, there's basically no conversation about supplementation. And using nutritional supplements will help close the gap in your efforts to make your health efforts as personalized as possible. So for example, if you're doing some intermittent fasting of 16 hours, if you have certain genes and certain genetics and uh, let's say malabsorption or malnutrition of certain nutrients and you don't take those during your intermittent fasting, you're missing a huge opportunity to have personalized and have uh, actually improved the benefits of intermittent fasting on your body. You know, if you want to lose weight during intermittent fasting and you're doing everything right, 
but your body doesn't have enough, let's say, for example, I'm just giving you one example. Some people jump on top of one example, <laughs> but here it is. If you don't have enough CoQ10 or ubiquinone, particularly the bioidentical form, which is the only one that I provide my patients, which you can find on my blood detective website, then you can't have an increase in ATP, molecular energy to burn fat. So that's why some people, and you might know them, who do intermittent fasting actually say, yeah, I lost a few pounds, but they came back or I lost just a couple of pounds. It wasn't what I thought. I've been doing this for weeks and weeks. And then other patients of mine that have seen me recently uh, say it didn't work at all. So I'll be describing some of the ways you can increase the probability of intermittent fasting along with nutrition and lifestyle to work correctly. So first I'll say the obvious, you know, without, without any doubt, heart disease is going to kill most of you listening to the show. It is the major killer of the 20th century. Uh, hardening of the arteries, that's called arteriosclerosis, all that hard stuff. That's a thickening and clogging which cuts down blood supply and oxygen and nutrition to the heart and also the other cells of the body because when someone has heart disease or hardening or clotting of the vessels that go to the heart, they also have it in other areas of the body. And if they get these individuals, I just had a patient who got eight bypasses on his uh, coronary arteries. That's basically, that's every major vessel in the heart. He didn't realize that there is the rest of his circulation. So for example, if there's hardening of the arteries that go to the kidneys, then that would lead to early kidney failure, which is a very common occurrence in people around age 60 and above, which cuts life short. So what's interesting is before the 19th, you know, the 1900s, I should say, heart disease uh, was virtually, you know, unknown. And now everyone knows all about it. And sadly, medical therapies, in my opinion, have not proven themselves uh, real cures uh, for heart and vessel disease. And that's sad because we're talking over 57 million people suffering from uh, diseases of the cardiovascular system. So in traditional medicine, you know, you have high cholesterol, you take a statin drug, which has its side effects and doesn't correct the, the, the reason why the person has high cholesterol. And there is a difference, by the way, everyone, how if you lower cholesterol, let's say with a drug, or you bypass an artery, or you use a medication for any cardiovascular condition, when you correct the problem that way, let's say, let's say the statin drug worked to lower your cholesterol. Let's say the uh, antihypertensive medication worked to lower your blood pressure. You may actually have a reduced morbidity mortality from that, a benefit. You might not. But when you do these things naturally, there's always an increase in uh, quality of life and generally length of life because you're not as likely to die prematurely from a disease that you can treat nutritionally. So I always like to deal in the most natural way possible with my patients. If that doesn't work well, then we consider maybe a combination of medication and nutrition such that the medication can offset the side effects and enhance the intended effects of the medication. So because of this like staggering number of, uh, of Americans, let's talk about the United States for a moment, about 57 million people are suffering from heart disease. They're looking to avoid heart disease in the first place. They're looking to avoid the medical therapies because they have their particular problems. So what is 
what is very gratifying, and I know this from my 30 years of holistic uh, training and clinical practice, is that alternative therapies do often provide a large variety of non-toxic ways to manage heart disease. And considering, and this is really important for you to hear this, considering that heart disease is not caused by any single factor, you have to have a holistic approach. Too many people I see think, oh yeah, I'll take this supplement made by this company which has 12,000 things in it that say heart protect. But if you don't absorb that, it's a waste. If the quality of the product is not good, it's a waste. And remember, all you know about the quality of the product is what you've read, okay? There's something called full disclosure labels that actually tell you third-party assays of the quality of the product. That's all I use and that's all I produce because the best diagnosis and the best plan of action, if met with the wrong tools, like the wrong nutrients, is a waste of time. Okay, so let me talk to you about the different types of cardiovascular disease for a moment. So first of all, there's coronary artery disease. That means that the vessels in the heart are clogged and there'll be decreased blood flow to the heart and that's when heart attacks happen. So it's different nutrition to think of when you wanna dissolve clots. Then there's hardening of the arteries or arterial sclerosis. Now, none of these things I'm telling you usually uh, occur by themselves. They can be combined. So you have to have a holistic nutritional approach, not just one thing for you know, the clogging and uh, another thing for the hardening and another thing for the rhythm. What I'm trying to say is, if you have any cardiovascular symptoms, what I would do is assess the disease of your cardiovascular system. I would provide you with the foods and nutrients that are specific for those conditions relative to your specific blood tests so it becomes yours. Very, very key. So there's coronary artery disease I mentioned, there's hardening of the arteries. I test that in my office. I can tell a patient how old their cardiovascular system is. In other words, by sending a, 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 an impulse through the capillaries in your finger, that reverberates throughout your entire cardiovascular system, based on the bounce off, it will tell me exactly how old your arteries are. So if it bounces off because there's stiffness and that's what they would find in a normal 75 year old, then your arteries are 75. The reason I mention this is because a lot of people never actually check other than cholesterol if they're responding to something. You know, you could have normalized your cholesterol because your cholesterol is now stuck to your arteries, so it's not floating around in the blood. So when the practitioner takes your blood test, your, your cholesterol is low. That's why you need to be looked at in a number of ways, like stiffness of arteries and also how well that your heart vessels, uh, your atria and your ventricles, how well they function to push nutrition and blood throughout your body. These, are, these can be assessed. I, I can't even tell you how many people I've seen that say, oh, Dr. Wall, they've done 30 chelation therapies. I feel great. And I'll say, that's a lot. Wow. Um, did you, so how much did you reduce the, your arterial stiffness and your blockage and your blood flow? And they look at me like I have two heads because they were never tested. And you know why they were never tested? Because doctors who do not believe that the therapy will work will not test. I don't care who your doctor is. If they're not testing you pre and post to prove something's working, there's something really, really wrong. The next type of heart disease is degeneration of the heart muscle. And the heart muscle is called the myocardium. 
And the heart muscle you need so that the electrical current from the nervous system can stimulate that muscle. But if you have weak muscle from aging, inactivity, when I say inactivity, you going shopping and walking up a couple of stairs and moving around a lot during the day, that's not activity. Well, it's activity of daily living by definition, but that is not enough to increase your myocardium to any extent. You might wanna look at my exercise show where I talk about uh, how to increase myocardial function through proper exercise, which brings me to another point. Some of you listen to exercise when I say the word exercise as some passive word that you already know how to do it. I can tell you from interviewing hundreds and hundreds of patients over the years that they respond the same way by thinking that they know the right exercise, they just have to do it, but they don't. They simply do not. The type of exercise depends on your overall health goals, and that we need to figure out, particularly if there's a cardiovascular concern. And pretty much every single person right now listening has some sort of heart disease on some level. Now, if you're thinking, oh, no, no, Dr. Wall, my, my doctor looked me over, he did an EKG, she did an EKG, it's fine. Well, your EKG might be fine for a 60-year-old. Uh, it might be normal for that, but can you run five miles? Or can you do certain activities without breathing heavy? My point is that people undersell themselves. The standard of your health is everything. The standard of my health as a 53-year-old man is that I can run every day five or six miles or more if I felt like it or less if I felt like it, but that's what I do. And I lift weights four to five days per week, heavy, the, the physical structure and appearance of my body is much, much younger than 53. So the point is this, the results that you have in your life right now, your lack of health, whatever level of health that you have, and, and for what it's worth, folks, the life that you're living, the success or lack of success you're having with your love life or your business or what have you, all of that, including your health standards are all arising out of how strong are your standards. I had a patient actually say to me something like, Dr. Wald, I am in no shape to work out. <laughs> I, I, you know, and if, after about 10 minutes of laughing, uh, I apologized and I, I wasn't really laughing for 10 minutes, I'm kidding. The point is he, she, she did say this to me and I had to point out what she said. She said, I'm in no shape to work out. Uh, I said, why? Well, when I start exercising, I walk up a few stairs, I'm out of breath. I said, why do you think that is? She says, because I'm out of shape. I said, right, so how would you get in shape? She didn't really know. I said, well, you continue to walk up those stairs. Maybe one day you walk up two stairs, another day you walk up three stairs, or several times during the day you're making this effort until your body gives up and allows you to move forward. That happens with physical activity, it happens with nutritional supplements, and it can happen with intermittent fasting, if you do it right. Just don't expect that your first effort will be perfect, it, may, it simply may not be. Health is, a, is an ongoing process, and it's a discovery process. Um, some people that I see think that I'll know exactly what they need in day one. The truth is, I generally know most of what they need at day two, 
because we've had a conversation, we've done some testings, I've had a uh, significant time to think about things, and then we sit down and I have a lot to do and a lot to tell them. Then there is the trial and error portion, putting things on, trying things on for size and seeing how they work, and then adjusting, adjusting, and adjusting. This is individually based holistic healthcare. That's what you need. Because all I care about is you. So we need to find out what you need. So back to the different types of heart disease. There's stroke, which you've all heard of. There's heart attack, which is usually preceded by chest pain, maybe arm pain, maybe back pain. And there's high blood pressure. So each of these things require different nutritional approaches just in general. And then, so, so think, listen to what I'm saying. So you have whatever disease you have or condition you have or health problem you have. So you might read some book that says you need supplements and foods ABC. Now, that might be true, but if I actually test your chemistries, you might not need A and C and only B, and you might need F and G. You know, what's so interesting to me is that since I started learning holistic healthcare, uh, first in chiropractic school, then they actually did mention the term holistic in medical school, I was shocked, but it was just literally mentioned. And then when I got my master's in nutrition, you know, a lot of times they'll say in our textbooks that, you know, healthcare and, and chiropractic and medicine and nutrition, it's a science and it's an art. So what's interesting is that, you know, science is science. So science will say that magnesium is good for this and coenzyme Q is good for that and vitamin C is good for that in scientific studies. But the art part, makes it very unique. The art part about you is figuring out exactly what you need. And the only way to do that is by starting out with a conversation, figuring out what the overall picture looks like in terms of what your needs are now, what your needs may be in the future because of your health goals, and also what your needs are now and in the future based on your past health experience. Then you fill out with me, detailed questionnaires to help hone in on the weak areas because they're the things holding everything else back. They, not, they might not even be areas you're aware of. And then there is doing laboratory tests that f further individualize everything and then trying on a plan. So when it comes to intermittent fasting, by having everyone simply fast for, let's say, 16 hours and then eat within an eight-hour window, it's far too general to be specific enough for you. So let's just talk a little bit here about intermittent fasting. We're going to jump back and forth between that and a cardiovascular disease. So as I mentioned, intermittent fasting is a form of, um, well, time-restricted eating, really, where typically there's 16 hours of fasting and then there's eight hours of eating and it's gained quite a lot of popularity, uh, as you might know. And um, it does show promise though, uh, as a new uh, paradigm uh, in the approach to weight loss and the reduction of inflammation, which when you really get to inflammation, you have many potential long-term benefits. So what I'm gonna do right now is talk to you about how intermittent fasting affects lipid metabolism, 
or fats, as well as inflammation and weight loss, but a good deal on lipid metabolism. Again, because whether you know it or not, you're going to die of a heart attack or some sort of cardiovascular disease. So you need to match and you need to marry intermittent fasting to cardiovascular disease. So it's really interesting is that survival and preservation of species uh, continuity, you know, depend among other things on their access to food. No food, die, okay? Uh, this is why all living organisms have developed many different uh, what are called adaptive mechanisms or ways that allow them to survive long periods of famine. Now, some organisms uh, in the periods where they lack access to food, they're completely dormant. For example, like yeast uh, that, that enter the secondary uh, phase uh, of their life cycle, they just shut down. In contrast, though, mammals, see, we have liver and adipose tissue, and these constitute an energy warehouse. So there's a lot of fat in the liver and the adipose tissue, and that's the energy warehouse that allows mammals to survive long periods of famine. Now, fats are essential components of the human body. People want to get rid of all their fat, but if you don't have fat, you can't dilute fat-soluble toxins, you won't have energy reserves, you won't be able to make certain hormones. So, it's a diverse group in terms of the structure and functions uh, of the body. In, in other words, there are different kinds of fats. We don't have time to go through all those fats now, but just suffice it to say that fats are very, very important. So one of the ways that fats are important is that energy is contained within adipocytes. Now adipocytes are fat cells. And under certain conditions, the, the adipocytes release the fats from why well, I should say because of the influence of, of enzymes. There are enzymes known as lipases, and those are the fat-suggesting enzymes. So I provide lipases to my patients for a number of reasons. They may help you absorb fat-soluble nutrients, not just foods that have fats like avocados and raw nuts and seeds, which have healthy fats, but also omega-3 fatty acids, coenzyme Q10, lipoic acid, melatonin, vitamin A, D, E, K. The list goes on, but the ones that I mentioned are the fat-soluble nutrients. Now, listen to this. After a meal, the concentration of glucose in the body increases, and then within a few hours, it returns to the state where it was before the meal. Makes sense, right? You eat food, your glucose goes up. Over time, your glucose goes down, as long as you're not eating again. Now, the concentration of ketones is low because glycogen stores in the liver are not depleted. Stay with me. So during the use of intermittent fasting diet, which consists of introducing fasting periods, there are marked metabolic changes in the body, by the way. So when you do intermittent fasting, you are changing a lot of metabolic pathways. So for example, when using a diet during which all food during the day is consumed in a six-hour nutritional window, the glucose level is elevated during and about six hours after the meal, but remains low for the remaining 16 hours until the next day. Now, during the six to eight hours in an 18-hour fasting window, ketones remain increased. 
So the human body is naturally adapted to such periods of fasting and in the moment of starving, adaptations or adaptive mechanisms, I should say, are used to obtain energy. So during fasting, when glucose is exhausted, folks, during fasting, when glucose is exhausted, the body begins to utilize ketones that arise as a result of what are called fatty acid uh, transformations in the body. So the body's making these fatty acids and the fatty acids are the energy. So fatty acids and ketones, they both become the main source of energy for cells during periods of fasting. So the transition, by the way, from using glucose to fatty acids and ketones for energy is called intermittent metabolic switching. It's got a few other names too, but I, I won't bore you with those. So while the body is abstaining from food, fasting, right? The concentration of glucose, which is the basic energy for substrate for anything happening in the body, it decreases. If you're fasting, your glucose goes down. Um, glycologists, I should say glycolysis is inhibited. So you fast, the glucose goes down, and this process in the body called glycolysis, which releases energy from glucose, is slowed down. Glycogen reserves in the liver are consumed and the process of gluconeogenesis is activated, activated, which means fats are consumed. So in addition, other hormones are affected by intermittent fasting. Insulin's affected, obviously, because insulin is what brings glucose up and down, and also growth hormone in the form of what's called insulin-like growth factor or IGF-1. So that's growth hormone. It's really active growth hormone. And, and growth hormone levels are reduced in the blood and, uh, and glycogen levels rise during fasting. So there are a lot of complicated ways in which the body adapts to fasting. I probably should mention too that during the long periods of fasting, during intermittent fasting, there's a huge production in different types of fatty acids. They become the fuel and they also burn fat. And they also have many other beneficial effects upon lots of tissues. So some of these fatty acids are called uh, acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyrate, for example. So all these different fatty acids are, are what take over. Now, so all of those biochemical transformations I just talked to you about, if you really care to learn them, just listen to this audio a couple of times. You could also email me your questions at info at blooddetective.com. That's info at blooddetective.com. And we can also test a lot of these fatty acids. If you're interested in seeing me to do that and work with me at a distance or in person, call me at 914-552-1442. So all of these biochemical transformations and production of uh, keto acids happen during intermittent fasting diets. Now, there were some studies conducted that showed that the use of fasting on alternative days for about two to three weeks showed a drastic reduction in body weight. Well, it was 3%, but longer attempts of, of intermittent fasting showed even more loss of body weight. But here's the problem. I have checked people's body weight during fasting. And oftentimes what happens, when I say often, more than 50% I found, people are losing weight, but they're losing weight from the wrong place. They're losing it 
from muscle or lean organs, the actual organs shrink, and water. And that means they're gonna get all, gain all their weight back and they are inherently much more unhealthy because that's what happens when you lose lean body mass over fat. Now, how would I know that this is the way the person lost the weight? Easy. Anyone attempting intermittent fasting that you really, if you don't wanna waste your time and your life doing it over and over and wondering why it's not working or you think it's working but you don't really know if you've lost fat, water or muscle, you must get a bioimpedance test. I've mentioned this before on the show, it's the number one biomarker or test that predicts morbidity and mortality. It is the number one test. That is not my holistic opinion, that is based on Tufts University's School of Gerontologists and extensive research and other parties that found that body composition, no matter what you're doing for your health, if you do not improve your body composition, you are actually not improving your health other than some momentary feeling good. You know, it's like you're eating cake right now. You'll feel good, but that's not fixing anything. Fixing anything is that you don't want the cake. Or maybe you'll have some cake from time to time, but you'll know it's just a fix. So you wanna get your body composition done because the body composition or bioimpedance test, they're the same thing, will tell you your metabolic rate, where your metabolic rate is coming from, the water balance in and outside of your cells, which is important for fasting and weight loss, and of course your percentage of muscle, water, and fat, and finally your phase angle, which is one of the most important tests to tell you if what you're doing actually is working on a cellular level. Intermittent fasting that's working for health promotion and weight loss that's healthy will result in an increase in your phase angle. If you wanna know more about phase angle, go to my blog at intmed, ny.com, I'll say it one more time, I-N-T-M-E-D-N-Y.com. Go to the blog section and just scroll down on the titles for phase angle. Too many people doing too many things and not knowing if they're actually working, relying on how they feel. Wrong. Now, intermittent fasting has a benefit on cardiovascular disease and and a lot of diseases, potentially because of its anti-inflammatory effect. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about how the anti-inflammatory part works, and then I'm gonna go over some details uh, of basic nutritional factors and food factors that should be uh, introduced during the um, eating phase of the intermittent fast. Okay, so this stuff on inflammation is a little complicated, but I'm only gonna give you just a couple of lines of things to be aware of. So first of all, you already know that inflammation is an essential element of human development. Uh, It has positive effects and adverse effects when in excess. Pro-inflammatory factors are bad. So pro-inflammatory factors can also be measured. And some of them are called homocysteine. Another one is called interleukin-6. Another common one you've probably heard of is C-reactive protein cardio. There's also ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate. There's fibrinogen, there's ferritin, and there's other markers of inflammation. And they're all a bit different, meaning I said to you that they're markers of inflammation, but they control and are involved in or reflect 
different types of inflammation that are dealt with differently nutritionally and in every other way. Now, in research that was conducted, the effects of, the, of intermittent fasting diet uh, on reducing the concentration of most of the uh, inflammatory markers that I just mentioned or the pro-inflammatory markers was very clearly demonstrated. So the experiment um, involved 40 healthy participants uh, with where they measured body mass index, that's the body composition test, who fasted during Ramadan and 28 participants respectfully or respectively uh, that were selected in terms of age and based on their body mass index that did not fast. So when they looked at people who fasted and who, who did fast, and they looked at their venous blood samples, they examined the concentration of these pro-inflammatory mediators, the C-reactive protein, the homocysteine, and the interleukin, interleukin, uh, interleukin-6 specifically. And what they found that one week before the start of Ramadan and in the last week of fasting and three weeks after, they found a reduction of a protein, what's called a collagen-like plasma protein, that decreased. It's called adiponectin, adiponectin. So what that is, like I said, it's a collagen-like protein whose concentration decreases in the course of atherosclerosis, insulin resistance, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. So the use of the intermittent fasting diet increased the secretion of adiponectin from fat cells. So there is an inverse relationship between plasma adiponectin levels and body weight, which means that the intermittent fasting diet has the potential of increasing the secretion of this harmful adiponectin and is favorable then for reversing and treating and prevention of various types of cardiovascular disease. Now, let's say you get it. You know the basics of intermittent fasting. You're thinking a 16 hour intermittent fasting approach might be ideal for you. In terms of the, the, the timing or the time I should say of intermittent fasting and what's best for each of my patients, that needs to be determined not everyone can fast for 16 hours. So there's, we have to be careful here because human beings tend to think in, in, a, in a way that's called global thinking. They globalize, thinking that, well, 16 hours is the best, so I need to do that. But it may not be the best for you. It simply may not be. So I figure that out based on body composition, your overall state of health, your health goals, your willingness to proceed, what is your physical condition allowing you to proceed, and we go from there. So when it comes to heart disease, because if we're trying to impact heart disease and lose weight and also deal with all the inflammatory factors of uh, intermittent fasting, we also need to know a few other things about nutrition. The first thing we wanna know is, and with heart disease, is that you need to minimize your salt intake. If you're salt sensitive, that's gonna raise your blood pressure. No amount of fasting alone without changing your salt is going to help. You certainly would probably want a high potassium diet with freshly juiced vegetables and fruits with that needed potassium, minerals, enzymes, fibers, uh, phytoelements. But the amount of potassium and juicing that you need, because that's all 
carbohydrates should be based on your percentage of muscle, water, and fat as measured on a lean body test or a body composition test. And then when you are eating during intermittent fasting, you certainly probably should not have any alcohol and you should eliminate any fruits and vegetables or any other foods that have any potential of causing any adverse reactions with you. For example, if you have a low thyroid condition called hypothyroidism, you should not be eating the cruciferous plants like broccoli, uh, cauliflower, and, and cabbage, just to name a few. Even though they're healthy, they're not healthy for you for the thyroid, you see. So very important to be aware of that. If you're allergic to any foods, if you malabsorb certain fats, then the types of fatty foods that you should eat should be, should be adjusted, or at the very least, you need to be on the proper digestive enzymes during the fast. I found that the addition of the digestive enzymes, either with stomach acid or without stomach acid, and always containing protein, carbohydrate, and fat digesting enzymes, enhances the potential benefits of not only intermittent fasting, which, uh, but all of its parameters. In other words, fat burning, reduction of uh, inflammatory uh, elements, and simply a better uh, outcome, just better results. So the other thing, now, by the way, I should just, when I talk about diet, I should probably say that the way that I figure out diet is based on a number of things, uh, everything from testing and to just a review of how you handle certain foods, how often you consume certain foods. You know, it's the foods you consume most often that are the troublesome foods, and they might not look like trouble to you. Like you might say, well, what is troublesome food? Maybe it's when I eat it, I get a stomach ache. But it could be that you eat it and you get um, um, fluid retention, or you eat the food and it slows your metabolic rate, even though it's a healthy food. So everything is relative. Let's talk about the top 12 or my top 12 picks of nutrients that I would consider for anyone with any level of cardiovascular disease. Remember folks, the dose of these foods, the timing of these, I should say these nutrients uh, will vary depending on your needs. It depends on how much weight you need to lose, uh, how much weight you need to lose, and are we dealing with cholesterol, how much weight we need to lose and you have metabolic syndrome or hypothyroid or adrenal weakness or chronic inflammation, or you might have chronic infections like candida, for example, and leaky gut and small intestine bacterial overgrowth, whatever the things are, they will adjust the supplements that you need, not just on the what you have wrong with you, but based on your testing. Remember, Blood Detective Show, this is Ask the Blood Detective. This is about figuring out what you actually need. This is not about guessing anymore. Those days are over. You need to become your own blood detective. If you don't, then you lose an opportunity to really build your health. Okay, first nutrient is acetyl-L-carnitine. So carnitine is a very important amino acid that has to do with having your body use omega-3 fatty acids and bring them into your cells. And when you bring fatty acids into your cells, that lowers cardiovascular risk, but it also increases a ketone production. So very, very important. And then I mentioned earlier, there's coenzyme Q10. So CoQ10 or ubiquinol should be the preferred form. A person can need anywhere from 100 to 400 milligrams uh, per day 
but even that depends on body weight and the timing does matter. So look, I know it's not easy, timing of this, fasting like that, but depending on how serious you are, remember we talked about standards earlier on in the show? If your standards are too low, you get nowhere. Someone says to me, Dr. Wald, I, I tried to lose weight, I've done everything. And I say politely, you haven't done everything because it will work on everybody. It, you, we just have to figure out how that works. People say they've tried everything because they've tried some things that maybe they honestly feel is everything. Or they're assuming that what they did, they did, they did right. And that I can tell you is commonly not the case. So if you work with a coach, someone like me, then I know various things that might be appropriate for you. So we will go through whatever it takes for you to get the results. It's plain, it's that simple. You know, weight loss is not hard. Keeping weight off and getting healthy, that's a little harder, okay? And then there's folic acid. Folic acid reduces homocysteine. And we talked about how high homocysteine is associated with pro-inflammatory events in the body that keep fat cells on. Now, just because you take folic acid, and B6 and B12, by the way, you always want to take them together for lowering homocysteine, um, that doesn't mean it's going to lower the homocysteine. We have to check that again. You might be taking not enough for the nutrients, or you might be taking just enough, but maybe not for the amount of time that you should be. And then there's glycosaminoglycans. So glycosaminoglycans, you might have heard of as far as helping joint health. And they, and they might help joint health but they also help to build up and repair the inside of blood vessel walls. So uh, again, the amount of all of these nutrients should be based on your metabolic rate and your lean body mass. I was sitting with a gentleman yesterday, 330 pounds, and he wondered why his nutrient protocol wasn't working the way he wanted. I reminded him for weight loss, I reminded him that it's only been four days and um, that uh, I didn't start him on the optimal dose of things yet. I started him on the minimal dose just to make sure that he's not you know, nauseous from everything. So there is a plan, folks. There is a plan that could be put together for you. Then there is vitamin E. Vitamin E is known to reduce cardiovascular disease, but vitamin E also promotes uh, ketosis. So it's gonna enhance the effects of intermittent fasting. And then there's magnesium. Magnesium is not gonna have a big effect on how you burn anything, but it is important for the cardiovascular component that intermittent fasting simply won't help. So in other words, vitamin, uh, I'm sorry, magnesium is very important for heart uh, cell health. The myocardial cells require vitamin, uh, I'm sorry, require magnesium. And magnesium, also helps the, the, the normal rhythm of the heart. It can help control the blood pressure by lowering it if it's too high. And then there's alpha lipoic acid. So the amount of, uh, of milligrams of alpha lipoic acid for most people is between one and 300 milligrams. But I have to remind you, you guys of something. When you embark on intermittent fasting, during the fasting part, the early fasting stages, the first four or five hours, your metabolic rate's actually increasing, but then it decreases. It decreases during most of a 16-hour fast, probably because the body is simply gearing up towards 
uh, producing a different biochemical state that will then result in a better metabolism for better weight maintenance. In other words, it's, it's like being on a treadmill. You don't lose weight on a treadmill other than some water weight. You lose weight on a treadmill by going on the treadmill a, several times and training your body's metabolism how to work when you are not on the treadmill. So the best effects of the, the intermittent fasting is when you're not actually fasting. Unless you decide you're gonna live like this and you know fast, for example, for 16 hours, etc. If you live like that, like a lifestyle, the physiology is a whole different conversation as well. Okay? But wanna leave you with the thought that the, your supplement doses vary during intermittent fasting because your metabolic rate is different and there's different opportunities there. It's not unlike a cancer person, person with cancer, or an athlete. Let me start with the cancer person. An individual with cancer during some times during the, uh, of the day can absorb nutrients better than others. Obviously, they should be eating more during the times they feel they can eat. And, uh, and then you should maximize that feeding time. And like an athlete, you know, if an athlete knows that at four o'clock she's gonna have an athletic event, she should be carb loading for at least 12 hours prior to that. And she also should have carbohydrates and free amino acids within one to three hours post-exercise so that the glycogen levels are stored um, more rapidly in the muscles and help for recovery from that event and then improve the athletic um, abilities for the next event. So all I'm trying to say here is there's always a, the best timing, whether we're dealing with cancer, sports, cardiovascular disease, or whatever. Very few people are talking about when to time the right supplementation during ketogenesis, but that is not something I can tell you because that is always individually based. It's less individually based in sports and cancer, but not so much heart disease. And then of course, well, what are the foods that you should be eating when you are eating uh, with an intermittent fasting uh, plan? Well, like I said, if you're allergic to something, don't have it. If you suspect you're allergic or intolerant to something, do not have it. Depending on your health problems and medications, there may be certain foods and nutritional supplements that you should not have. Now, I spoke with a person yesterday who, with cardiovascular disease, who based on his medication, there were several nutrients he, he could not have. He was on warfarin, which is a blood thinner, so he can't be taking large amounts of vitamin E, for example. So that's just a simple example, but it's a very, very real example. It's a lot of dangerous combinations going on out there with clinical nutritionists not understanding because they're not trained in drug nutrient interactions. There are exceptions. So otherwise, the food should be fruits and vegetables. They have a protective cardiovascular effect. They have a very high flavonoid content, which is known to reduce cardiovascular and stroke risk. And then we know that persons with a higher consumption of, of meat uh, definitely have a, a higher heart attack risk. 
But if they consume more cold water fish, such as salmon, mackerel, and tuna, which have you know, high omega-3s, there's lower cardiovascular risk there. Yes, I know that fish isn't clean, et cetera, et cetera, but it still seems to lower cardiovascular risk, so I still mention it. And then the thing about cholesterol, needing to realize that if you lower cholesterol too low, you're not gonna make testosterone, you're not gonna make healthy estrogens, you're not gonna make the adrenal hormones well. So it's important when you're reducing fat in your diet, which people are generally doing during intermittent fasting, that they get their cholesterol checked and make sure that their cholesterol does not go below 165. Cholesterol above 200 increases heart disease risk. Everyone knows that. But cholesterol less than 160, 165 increases exponentially cancer risk. Any cardiovascular effort and also more permanent weight loss effort because the intermittent fast, although it could be powerful, it's, it's rarely permanent and requires like regular exercise, regular um, maintenance, possibly regular fasting intervals throughout your life, or maybe you can get away with something less. Um, usually I can do that with my patients because most people simply cannot follow an intermittent fasting lifestyle, um, which is fine because there are other ways of doing things. And, that, and that's my job as a blood detective to figure that out. The easiest way that people can get the results that they want and make sure that they get them. So back to like dietary things. Monounsaturated fats are cardioprotective, and those are of course, as you know, found in the Mediterranean diet, and avocados as well as raw nuts and seeds contain a good amount of healthy fats that promote uh, ketogenesis and removal of cholesterol and hardening of arteries. Alcohol consumption, you know, people say moderate alcohol consumption appears to to be okay, but it really does show a dose-response relationship to the risk of what's called intracerebral and subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the more alcohol you drink, the greater your risk of getting a stroke. It's just that simple. And then um, I want to mention another evaluation that's important for people who are serious about knowing whether or not any of their efforts exercise, chelation, nutrition, supplements, what, uh, intermittent fasting. If you're interested to know if you have actually affected the stiffness of your arteries, you need to do an arterial stiffness test. An arterial stiffness test is simply a test where an alternating current is fed through the capillaries in a finger and it bounces and reverberates through throughout the entirety of your cardiovascular system. As it goes through, it bounces off the sides of the arteries. And based on the bounce off, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, you'll get a certain stiffness index. If you are lowering your cardiovascular disease in a real way, you must, must have a reduction in arterial stiffness, an increase in blood flow, and also what's called a reduction in blood viscosity. Blood viscosity is the thickness of blood. If you can manage these three, these three parameters, you're really doing something with your efforts, whether again, it's intermittent fasting or any other efforts, but you do need to have some sort of objective assessments because other, otherwise you simply can't, cannot know what you are doing. And I want you to write this down. 
I'm going to give you a list of some very important tests that you should have done, or you might want to consider having done, so that you have the proper baseline for cardiovascular health, along with your weight loss efforts. So one is homocysteine, and the other is CRP, C-reactive protein, and the other would be ESR. So we talked about those before, and then along with the arterial stiffness test, that's essential because the closest thing to that is someone getting a CT scan of their chest to look for calcium, which by the way, provides to your body the equivalent of several hundred x-ray equivalents. Uh, you don't want that. You certainly need your cholesterol checked, so you need to fast for 12 hours. You need your triglycerides, which will tell us about how you're handling sugars. Your glucose, your blood glucose. If your blood glucose fasting number is greater than 85, although that's within the range of normal, the Journal of Endocrinology several years ago showed that an 85 or higher on a fasting test, which it should be even lower, um, increases your risk of developing uh, prediabetes. When I have compared 85 glucose values, which are normal, with hemoglobin A1Cs, nine out of 10 times, it predicts the glucose that the hemoglobin A1C, which is a several week test or, or several week average, I should say, of your blood sugar, and it's used for diabetes, the person is pre-diabetic. Uh, so they have a 7.4 uh, sort of cutoff, which is at the pre-diabetic range. Now, the word pre-diabetic should not make you feel any better. If you are pre-diabetic or borderline, you're a diabetic. This is when the damage is happening. Doctors kind of make that sound like it's the beginning of a problem when it is the problem. When you're already diagnosed with diabetes and you're way down the road, you've already had the damage. So it's very, very important to not be thrown off by these, uh, these terms, borderline and, uh, and, and, and terms such as those, which imply you're close to normal when you're actually not. You definitely want your good cholesterol, your HDL checked. You need your sodium checked and your potassium. I would like to see your creatinine, C-R-E-A-T-I-N-I-N-E. Your creatinine is essential for letting me know if you have loss of lean body mass, which is called sarcopenia. Folks, if you're losing lean mass, you can also tell that on a body composition test. So add body composition or bioimpedance, body composition or bioimpedance to your list. If you're losing lean mass, your intermittent fasting efforts are going to be very poor. You must have a certain amount of lean mass. Definitely want to know your calcium because if your calcium is high or on the high end of normal, or if your calcium is leaking from your urine, your doctor's not gonna to wanna to do that test because it takes time. If you're losing calcium, that calcium is coming from your bones. More bone loss means calcium coming out, calcium going into arteries, stiffening those arteries, and promoting inflammation and responding to inflammation, we would need to fix that calcium. And that might mean reducing inflammation. Some of you are saying, no, no, just chelate the calcium. Well, that's like removing the smoke in a room 
and not re replacing the furniture. I mean, everything's going to be reeking. So it's important to know about calcium for cardiovascular health and the inflammation part of it, which intermittent fasting may help reduce. Now remember, intermittent fasting is only one way in which the body can reduce inflammation. And it's very, very short term. It's super short term, like a couple of days or as long as you continue to fast. That's not going to do it for most of you. You have too much happening for too long. But it can, intermittent fasting, act as an impetus to move things along more strongly. Okay? So, as far as intermittent fasting goes, and as far as the so-called cardiovascular diet, these concepts really apply to most health problems. I cannot really think of any group other than possibly certain people with certain um, extremes of cancer that should not do intermittent fasting. I did not say that some people with cancer should not do intermittent fasting, but many people with, with cancer are already malnourished and having them fast is just, let's say fasting allows them to reduce inflammation. It's not going to have them reduce inflammation to a point that's going to affect their longevity. I would rather affect and reduce inflammation through nutritional supplement and food means rather than stressing the person's body out with cancer with an intermittent fast. However, if the person is earlier on with their cancer and not towards the end or somewhere in the middle where they have some resiliency, it may be the appropriate thing to do intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is not a cure-all. Nutritional supplements, diet, natural health are not cure-alls, but neither is traditional medicine. There is something in all of this for everyone as long as we can figure out how to apply it to individuals. As a blood detective, that's all I think about. That's all I've thought about for 30 plus years, how to make everything designed for the person. Please let me know what you thought of the show. For those of you, again, new to, to the show, thank you so much for joining. My name is Dr. Michael Wald, and we've been listening to a cardiovascular discussion relative to intermittent fasting. If you want to reach me, you can call me at 914-552-1442, 552 1442 It's a 914 area code. Send me your show ideas, as always, to info at com. And what I'm going to do for the next show is I'm going to talk more about uh, intermittent fasting and how intermittent fasting can be used to fix specific health problems. Thanks again for joining me. This is Dr. Michael Wald. I've done.